people talk about the nuclear threat escalating as if it's just escalating on its own the way, you know, like a storm system drifts into your neighborhood. But really, it's just one guy very consciously escalating it. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, October 25th, and today Julia Yaffe is here to talk about whether the threat of nuclear war is rising, with Russia vowing to use nuclear weapons if needed, and Ukraine urging the world to take Vladimir Putin more seriously. Later, Julia Alexander breaks down the data behind the Star Wars show Andor and other programming on Disney Plus to determine what's working and what's flopping for the multi-billion dollar franchise. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe. And Julia, um, first of all, how are you? It's great to see you. I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. Julia, we've talked a lot on this show about the possibility of Russia, Vladimir Putin, using nuclear weapons in the course of their conflict with Ukraine, also known as their invasion of Ukraine. It does feel like in recent days, there's been a little more saber rattling around this. Russia's defense minister and, and their equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I guess, suggested that Ukraine might try to use a dirty bomb in this conflict, which the White House said that was nonsense. But, you know, maybe this is like a false flag thing. They could blow up a dirty bomb and and claim that as rationale to use a tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine or another ally or anywhere that we're not even thinking about. How much has the nuclear threat actually escalated in the last few weeks? Or has it always been the same? I think it's definitely escalated in the last few weeks, uh, mostly because uh, Putin has escalated it. What frustrates me about the discourse that we see around it is that people talk about the nuclear threat escalating as if it's just escalating on its own the way, you know, like a storm system drifts into your neighborhood. But really, it's just one guy very consciously escalating it and turning up the dial threatening the world with nuclear war because he can't win on the battlefield using conventional means. As for this, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. We saw something very similar early on in the war back in the spring when Russia was accusing Ukraine of developing chemical weapons and biological weapons. They even took this to the UN where they were kind of laughed out of the room. Um, But this was a big talking point in Russia that and on Russian TV, that Ukraine was going to use chemical and biological weapons as a, and then blame it as a false flag and then blame it on the Russians. I saw that at the time as kind of Russia laying the groundwork for using such weapons, and then they ended up not doing that. So when I see this happening, I'm like, oh, are you just telegraphing that this is what you're going to do? Ukrainian general... Alexander Sierski, correct me if I'm wrong, as always, if I'm pronouncing these things wrong. He did an interview with ABC a few days ago, and he said, we should all be taking this seriously, and people aren't taking it seriously enough. Not that Ukraine is the one escalating the threat, but it just feels like the conversation is out there now in a way that it wasn't maybe a couple months ago. Well, it was out there already when Putin announced the invasion back in February. If you recall, he said that anybody who dares to push back against us will be met with such measures that will have no precedent in history and will be 
he sounded like he was kind of this dark lord summoning the the dark powers of the universe, but he was clearly talking about nuclear weapons. And he put that on the table the morning of February 24th when he announced the invasion. And then he rattled it again three days later when the Russian army immediately got bogged down in Ukraine. And it was clear that they weren't going to roll the Ukrainians in three days. So I think we've been living with an elevated threat since the war started. As for the question of whether or not we're taking it seriously, I'm not really sure what it means to take it seriously, especially for people like you and me. It's like telling someone, hey, be careful or be safe, you know, like try not to get stabbed or something. You know, it's like, okay, okay, it's totally out of my hands and out of your hands, whether Putin does this. I'm not sure what it means to take it seriously. I think people I think people are taking it seriously, but it's also like, what can you really do? Yeah, and it's the question of how do you take it seriously and raise the alarm while also making sure you appropriately play the diplomatic games needed to play so that it does like loose lips don't end up annihilating the world. And we sort of saw like a factor of that when Joe Biden made those comments in that fundraiser a few weeks ago. The Armageddon ones? Yeah, we might be facing Armageddon. <laughs> but he's not wrong. Like, we might be. This is the thing. I mean, like Joe Biden, when he's off script, frequently says things that are either more insightful telling or actually like politically astute in a way that he kind of doesn't when he's on the teleprompter and his aides are holding his hands. But he, like, we might be. But, you know, that the White House sort of like walked that back and they didn't want to talk about it because the president of the United States is saying we might have Armageddon getting out there. You know, that heightens the rhetoric too. Yeah, it does heighten the rhetoric. And I think that when Putin does this and his the guys around him do this, it freaks people out in the West. And it does two things. I think this dirty bomb thing, which is very clearly bullshit, is one, an attempt to shift the blame to Ukraine, right? It's to basically accuse the the country that is defending itself from an aggression of being the aggressor. Because before we were like, oh no, will Putin use a nuke? Will he not use a nuke? And now we're talking about whether or not Ukrainians will use a dirty bomb. Right. So that very deftly shifts the narrative onto whether Ukraine will use a nuclear weapon, which is like, but they don't have one. The only people who would would be the Russians. Let's get back to talking about that. The second thing it does is it freaks out Westerners and makes them ask, do we really give enough of a shit about Ukraine to risk Armageddon? I think the answer for most Americans is no. And for most Europeans is no. And I think that's what. Putin is going for. On Monday, we saw that AOC and Ilhan Omar and a bunch of progressive liberal Democrats in the House said, you know, this is getting scary and this is grinding on for a long time and Biden should start talking directly to Putin, which of course he has not done since before the war started. I feel like more than anything, just the threat is successful in getting Westerners and especially Americans in their own heads about, we don't care about Ukraine that much and let's just wrap this up. And if we feel that way, then it's very much Putin's win. The last thing I want to ask you is what nuclear capabilities does Russia actually have and how might they be deployed? They have massive nuclear capabilities. They have spent the last decade or so 
revamping and modernizing them, and also building new weapons that Putin has claimed have all kinds of fantastical abilities, including hitting the U.S. mainland. They also have tactical nuclear weapons, which the U.S. used to have, but are all kind of disassembled and in storage. But these are much smaller nuclear weapons than the ones we saw used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They would take out basically a chunk of a city, like several city blocks, and spread radiation in a lot of places. Very shitty, very unpleasant. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they'll actually end up using them. Julia, thank you so much for the, <laughs> for the bright optimism <laughs> you always bring to the show. Always. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Julia Alexander tells Ben Landy what shows are working over at Disney+. Plus. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, talking today to Julia Alexander. How was your weekend, Julia? Pretty good. How was yours? It was excellent. So you're not just one of the most respected analysts of the streaming industry. You're also a fan of these television and film franchises that you write about. And so I wanted to have you on today to talk a little bit about Star Wars, which is some of the most profitable IP of all time. But I'm also going to say like a little bit disappointing, maybe frustrating for some fans. Our colleague, Matt Bellany, just had a great piece on Sunday, basically doubling down on his perspective that the films as a franchise have been mismanaged creatively. But I also wanted to get your opinion on the streaming side of things, where there's actually been a ton of creativity lately from Disney+, Plus, but also some questions about how many people are actually watching these things. Yeah. So the interesting thing about something like a Star Wars or something like a Marvel or a DC, which we think of as multi-generational, you know, kind of cross-platform, cross-distribution avenues fandom. This is the type of thing that your parents will have affinity for and you have affinity for and your kids will have affinity for. One, that's extremely difficult to create. Very few things have it. It's like Star Wars, Marvel, Super Mario, Pokemon, right? Like there's like very few things that actually accomplish this. But The way to kind of do this, or one of the ways, you know, there's about seven or eight different rules that I kind of have or guidelines that I give to clients for that they have to hit in order to kind of hopefully create a long lasting franchise. And it's still a matter of luck sometimes. But one of the things that they have to have is different entry portals for different generations. So if we think about this along the lines of Star Wars, there was like the the trilogy back in the 70s and 80s that we think of like for our parents, there was the prequels when I was coming up and I was like five or six. Then there was the Clone Wars animated series. And then there was the sequel trilogy. And there's a there's a different way for, for people to interact with it. Um, on the video game front, we think about how games like Zelda and Mario kind of reestablish themselves with new forms of format every 10 or so years. So that way people feel like they have a different Pokemon or different Zelda and it's theirs. This is really crucial. So on the film side to Matt's reporting, it feels like we've hit this kind of stagnation in Star Wars. And on the streaming side, one of the most interesting shows in a very long time is Andor, which follows Cassie and Andor from Rogue One, which was one of the spin-off movies that they did back in 2016, I believe. And the interesting thing about this show is that 
it almost feels like the first non-Star Wars, Star Wars thing. There's it's not lightsaber, big battles. It's not, doesn't tie into the Skywalker trilogy in the way that it, you know, or, or not trilogy, the Skywalker saga rather, that if other shows felt like they've had to. It really is kind of its own interesting sci-fi story that just takes place within the Star Wars universe that treats Star Wars as a giant sandbox, which is how it should be treated. To your earlier point, So not only does Andor have some of the best reviews of many of the Star Wars entries in the last five years, but it has some of the worst ratings in terms of actual viewership. At the time that we're recording this, I believe that there were just about over 670 million minutes calculated by Nielsen. And when we compare that for the first three episodes, when we compare that to Mandalorian, which had over a billion, when we compare that to Obi-Wan, which had two episodes and was over a billion, when we compare that to Boba Fett, came in at just under 400 million minutes, it actually works out to be one of the lesser watch shows opening weekend wise, kind of opening premiere for a Star Wars title. And it got me thinking about it because there is this critical dissonance, which is not necessarily uncommon happening with Star Wars right now, but it also feels like the most important entry for Star Wars. It feels like the next path forward. It feels like this is a way a lot of people who were either not interested in Star Wars, were burnt out on Star Wars, or who are young and kind of getting into Star Wars or younger and looking for something new This really feels like that. The question at the heart of that is, are these therefore not successful? Are these unsuccessful entries? And my argument, and as I've talked to people in the space who have either led franchises or overseen franchise development at Disney formerly or other companies, the argument is it's really hard to tell, but if it actually leads in an increase of total addressable market for these types of shows, and it helps lead into deeper fandom for the films once they really start to kind of get back on track at Star Wars, then it's an absolute success. The way I always think about it is these are sandboxes. that They have 10,000 characters within Marvel. They've got thousands of characters within Star Wars. You can't make the same show over and over again because you're not going to grow your audience base. You're just going to kind of retain the same audience. To grow audience, both into the next generation and also globally right now, you have to do things that aren't inherently tied to what everyone, what, what the other series, what the other films have done. And so that's why when I was talking to you about this last week, I was like the most important shows on Disney right now, Disney Plus, from two of the biggest franchises, are their least successful shows according to ratings. Well, let's talk about Andor for a minute. I only started watching the show recently, so I can't speak to much of it creatively, but it is a real departure in tone. It's more of an adult drama, maybe an overdue correction from some of the more, I'm going to say, juvenile Disney Plus shows that were out there. I was not a big fan of Obi-Wan. So that's part of the Disney streaming strategy here to appeal to different audiences. Is that something that they can pull off successfully while also not fracturing this audience or allowing it to start feeling disjointed? My favorite thing that happens on the internet is like a group of people who are mad about the direction of Star Wars. And we saw this with The Last Jedi, which was kind of Ryan Johnson's approach to diversifying what Star Wars could be um, in terms of a concept. My favorite response is people go, I hate this, I'll never watch it again. And then they watch the next Star Wars thing. And so what's really funny is that There's this misconception, I think, amongst executives, amongst people on the internet in general, amongst fans, that if they do something that's completely different and it gets panned by this very vocal fan base, then it means that it's not successful. And I would argue that that fan base, the ones who have R2-D2 tattooed on them, and that's not an insult, like I have Star Wars tattoos, are not going to go away. They are like, cool, I'm still going to watch the Star Wars thing like I'm embedded in it and I'm going to rewatch Star Wars. So even if Disney Plus were to lose an audience base, let's say let's say a percentage of the audience base in the new shows, they're still going to have that audience who are watching the movies. Like they're still going to have those people come into Disney Plus to rewatch things. What they really need to do going forward as they think about 
not just the streaming and film side, which of course are very important, but the theme park side, you know, and the merchandising side is how do we appeal to audiences that we are not necessarily hitting right now with our content? And that might be young female, it might be older women, it might be um, Latino males. Like, Like you can really break it down to demographics and it's like, well, how do we do that? The best way to do it is you create content for that audience base. If we think about what DC was trying to do with Batgirl before David Zaslav and the team over at Warner Brothers Discovery canceled the film, when we think about what that film was going to do, that film was going to open up DC to a more Latin-based audience who might not have been interested, at least a portion portion of it, who might not have been interested in DC otherwise. And that's what the comic books have figured out over the last 20 years. It was like, you can't just make the same thing over and over for the same audience because you're not going to grow your audience. You're kind of going to remain flat or at worst, you're going to churn. You're going to lose audience bases. as they age out, as they do other things, as their attention goes elsewhere. So you have to find ways in that speak to an entirely different audience who are like, oh, this is cool. Like now I'm on board and maybe you capture them and you bring them into the franchise. To your exact point, what was Obi-Wan? What was Boba Fett? Obi-Wan and Boba Fett were like nostalgia plays. It was like, hey, you were into this. So we think you're going to be into what we're doing here. If we look at what Andor is, Andor is here's your conception of Star Wars. Let's turn it on its head. And I think there's an audience base there who are like, that's not what I thought Star Wars is. And now I'm into Star Wars. Or you have a base of people who were like, I don't really care about Star Wars anymore. I'm not really as into it. And now we're back into it. Who will then play those characters in Fortnite? Who will then maybe pick up merchandise? And that's really key to those franchise growing. It's like, are you had, do you have the new generations who come in? Do you have that cross-generational affinity? But then do you also have new entryways for different audiences to come back in or to find their way to the franchise in order to continue growing it out? The last thing I'll say on it is this is the beauty of streaming. This is what streaming should be. It is a safer environment in terms of not having to worry about the box office revenue and the marketing spend to do the experimentation, to find audiences at a cheaper rate, to then maybe bring them to the film side. And if they're not going to do them on Disney+, Plus, they're not going to necessarily do it in film because look what happened the last time Star Wars tried to do this with film. Didn't end well for Lucasfilm, but this is the way to do it. Like this is the promise of Disney+, Plus with these franchises. So I think as we think about what is success and failure, you know, with these types of shows, it's so easy to look at the ratings from Nielsen, to look at demand from Parrot, to look at any other kind of, you know, third-party tracking company and say, well, this one isn't as successful as this one because of this arbitrary number. But I would argue that what Mandalorian had to do, which was really bring in viewers to Disney Plus, and what Andor had to do, which is convince people that there was more to Star Wars than what they've seen in the first two years at Disney Plus, three years at Disney Plus, or, or within the films, it's really hard to quantify and although, and we can quantify the value and the value is very important, but what this sets up for the next decade is just as crucial. And that's something that we won't know until we see it play out for another two, three years. Totally. This is such a fascinating topic. Julia, thanks so much for coming by and talking about it. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 